is Gabriel Masudi, and you're listening to Learn, Unlearn, Optimize. I'm like sobbing into the phone, and and I'm like, like you have to come get me because, and I could hardly say the word. I'm like because I could hardly say the words because I have been told I have cancer. I, I could hardly spit the words out. This is Theodore Shin. My interview with her, discussing her most recent editorial release. Um, she just did a photo shoot that got published. She'll talk more about it and taking through her through uh, her book and her journey with breast cancer in the hopes of inspiring, lifting up, and providing support and service to all those who may need it at this time. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We're live. Wow. So just like that. Wow. So, Fee, I typically record the intro okay. after the show. Okay. But while you were sitting outside just now, yeah. and you were waiting for me, I was recording the intro because I went through your book, and um, I've done a lot of reflecting on it because we were supposed to record last week. Right. And, uh, you know, I've been asking you to, to get on the, the show, and you were like, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I will. Not and then really. You, and then you did, that, <laughs> you did that editorial shoot. Right. Which was, um, what, what was it for? It was for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Okay. And, and where did it get published? Oh, <laughs> it was in uh, New York Times. It was in Oprah Magazine. It was in InStyle. And one of my daughter's friends says it's in Cosmo. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> now, was there an article attached with it? Was there a write-up or was it a, were you featured as, the, as in the photo shoot? Um, no. The photo shoot... It, what, I was one of the individuals part of the photo shoot. Um, I think that they're probably going to have a, my, my suspicion, I, I believe they're going to have a broader campaign mm-hmm. probably throughout the year. They're going to use these ads throughout the year. Um, right now, if you go to bcrfcure.org, mm-hmm. um, their big focus now is on um, metastatic breast cancer. And there's a woman who uh, was present there that day when I did the shoot, who who is I think yeah the, the, their focus right now in the campaign. I, I suspect that um, their focus with me and my mom and my daughter more is about yeah, a, a, this generational thing and um, the impact yeah breast cancer has across the generations in my family, um, but also what can you do about it. And it's, for me, it's why I give, why Mm. I support them. Yeah. So thinking about, and what is metastatic? What does that mean? What metastatic means is the cancer has spread outside of the organ that it developed in. So that means you've got breast cancer in your bone, in your brain, in your lung, those are the common places that <clears throat> metastatic breast, the breast cancer can go to. So they call that stage four disease, and that becomes a very different disease than something than stage one. Mm-hmm. Stage one meaning it's you find it just localized in mm-hmm. in the in the breast itself. With regards to breast cancer, so then it's so stage one in the breast itself, and then as it progresses two, three, and four, it spreads to other spreading, areas. Of yeah, the yeah, other spreading, body. whether it's spread, um, the staging, you know, 
not my area of expertise, but the staging, mm-hmm. um, yeah, is in regards to whether it's spread to the, lymph, the localized lymph nodes, mm-hmm. um, particularly lymph nodes in the axilla, um, the size of the tumor mm-hmm. locally, whether mm-hmm. it's, you, you start with a really large tumor or a tumor that's very small. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One For anyone listening to this or that's going to listen to this fee, and again, you guys can fact check me on this. I'm not an expert on it either. But as you know, I had my experience also, which is why I was telling you about the introduction, about how powerful this is for me. Okay. And I'm, and I'm so thankful. Like This type of, of content is why I started this. This is, I want to be in service and like be able to get this message out to people, which is why I wanted you to come on and discuss your experience and and reading through your book, it brought up so many memories from myself and, and things like, wow, you know, maybe there's something I could, I could reach out and help with. And I'm just very proud of you and I'm very honored that you're here. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for oh, being here. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for um, whatever shifted after your, your photo shoot to being like, let's do it. And so I'm glad. I mean, I'll have to admit, I mean, you and I talked about this. I was a little, I was a little, mm, after the shoot, because I didn't realize, yeah, not that I'm a, a private individual. I mean, yes, I'm a private individual. Oh my God, this day of social media and all that stuff. I'm not any of that stuff. But I'm a bit of a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I know that when I agreed to, to participate, um, I kind of signed away my rights to things, my yeah. editorial rights. And so, yeah, I was a little concerned. Yeah, I thought, hmm, not something that I, like, yeah, well, and I'm like, well, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> it's done. Uh, there's no going back. Um, and really, it, it is a cause that I support 150%. Mm-hmm. So let's just go with it. Yeah. And this is a, a cause I support 150% also. Anything to do with helping people hear, uh, heal from this disease and uh, the mental impact, the emotional impact, it's more than just the cancer itself. Yes. It's everything that comes along with it. It is. It's, you know, Absolutely. Like anything else, you can't just pull in one part of the web and expect the structural integrity of everything to stay there. It affects everything. So. Right. Um, that being said, do you want to give just a quick background on yourself prior, prior to your experience and prior to finding out about this? I mean, just a quick nutshell, like you, you're a, a pediatric anesthesiologist. How'd you get into that, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, okay. Um, well, before, before any of this, I guess I say um, I was the mother of three beautiful children. Um, at the time, my children... Were, let's see, Grace was 10 and my twins were seven and a half. Okay. Busy working mom, pediatric anesthesiologist um, locally here in town, uh, trying to balance it all. <laughs> yeah. Trying to balance it all and have it all. Um, didn't, didn't have time to get sick. Really? <laughs> there was Who too does? much going on. Yeah. Who does? Um, yeah, that's. How did you get into becoming an anesthesiologist, specifically with pediatric? Like, what was your draw to that to begin with? What was your, your oh, okay. passion? All right, so I did a pediatric residency first, thinking that I wanted to be a general pediatrician, and I realized uh, 
pretty quickly that I thought I'd made a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, general pediatrics really wasn't for me. Um, it's that's, but that wasn't my experience in medical school. In medical school, you're you know you're on the hospital ward. You're dealing with there's a lot of intensity and things happen fast. And these kids are sick, but they do remarkably well. So I thought, okay, great. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to the pediatrics. Um, but really, the practice of pediatrics is primarily in the office, and that was you know, when I started doing my clinical rotate my clinic rotations. I was like, <clears throat> this isn't for me. But you know, I thought mm, I'm miserable. That's because I'm a resident. I'm on call every third night, up all night. <laughs> um, so it'll get better. It didn't get better. Um, and eventually I thought, okay, I've got to do some sort of uh, subspecialty. So at first I thought, maybe neonatology, because I love babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, those premature babies, you know, there's, <laughs> they, they can be very sick, obviously. Um, not to state the obvious, but um, it just had some ethical issues in terms of how young we were resuscitating or not resuscitating, and and how I think a lot of times the outcomes aren't what you want, and you see how much it impacts families and things like that. So I I didn't know that my heart was in it there. So then I thought, okay, maybe I'll do uh, I'll do critical care. I'll do ICU medicine. Um, and my mentor at the time. His main regret was not having done his fellowship through anesthesia. You see, you could do pediatric critical care through anesthesia or through um, uh, uh, just the regular track after Pete's residency, do a, just a critical care fellowship. But he rued the fact that he didn't do through anesthesia. Reason being, um, there's a pretty high burnout rate amongst intensivists, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, and then what do you fall back on? And I didn't ever want to be a general pediatrician. <laughs> So uh, I decided to go the anesthesia route. And when I did my anesthesia residency, that's when I was like, wow, I have found my calling. Because as much as I disliked my pediatric residency, I loved my anesthesia residency. Um, It's very powerful. Now, how old are you at the time when you're figuring all this out, approximately? Oh, I was young. Um, I was... was, uh, was... You're still young, Faye. (laughs) (laughs) I was 23 when I graduated med school. So. But to be to but to be making these decisions and to be seeing what you're seeing at that age to me is incredible. Also, so you were you were making decisions if if I heard you correctly based on how young these premature babies are for resuscitation, whether you're going to bring them back to life or not, right. making calls and how that's going to impact families yeah. at twenty early twenties going early in 20s, yeah. going to speak yeah, with fam- yeah. going in to speak with families yeah. that their child has passed. I mean, yeah. I've got. Uh, is, am I accurate? Like, yeah, I mean, but like you know, I had I was a resident. I mean, I had fellows and but still, you're, ahead of me. you're, you're witnessing it. it. Absolutely. It's happening in front of you. Absolutely. It's going through your filter. Absolutely. I, I, and you I, have to process it. You have to process. And you it. probably still do. Yeah. Whoa. I do. Whoa. I do, and I can. <laughs> it's so I went ahead and I did the anesthesia. Still thinking I was going to do the critical care. And then I was in fellowship at Children's of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It was December of 1994, and I had to be—I had to be the fellow in the Peds ICU for that month. That was part of my rotation. Mm-hmm. 
even though it was being anesthesia. And I remember the first five kids I admitted to the ICU all died. We had an oh outbreak of meningococcemia that winter. What is that? It's a terrible, terrible bacteria that can cause fulminant sepsis, severe infection. And it, there was an outbreak in the hospital? No, it was an outbreak in Philly. In the town, in the city of Philadelphia, or in, the, in that so area, the mothers get it, and the... no, 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 that the kids get it. So these were kids; they were between the ages of two and seven. Oh my goodness! Normal kids. Oh wow! Nothing wrong. No, not immunosuppressed. Nothing. So this isn't a premature baby that's no. being delivered. No, no, oh no, no, my no. goodness! These kids are just walking in off the street with this bug, and it didn't matter what antibiotic we gave them. It didn't matter how much fluid I gave them. It didn't matter. What I tried to give, you know, in terms of like cardio, cardiac resuscitative type medicines, they all passed. And I ran like for the rest of the month, they all, they all passed. They, they kept passing. I mean, mind you, yes, some, there were, it wasn't all bad, but I kind of forgotten what ICU medicine was like because I was doing anesthesia. I wasn't seeing that amount of death, you know, so close up. Um, so I had to take a step back. So I kind of backed away from doing the ICU. Yeah. And I just went back to the anesthesia. Good thinking, thing we got these tissues, Theodora. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I went back to the anesthesia. And, um, and I haven't looked back. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, I feel like I've got the best job in the world. I mean, I, mean, I you know, my, my goals are very defined. I mean, right. I have, I there's a goal I have. You know, you are coming into my operating room, you are having your hernia done. Well, my job is to make sure that you have your hernia operation right. um, and that I provide optimal, you know, conditions for the surgeon in order to do that hernia operation, but do it safely on you and you not remember anything, you not feel anything, you not know anything about it. And then, if you, you know, an hour or two later, you get up and you go home. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's the medicines that we use. I mean, uh, as a friend of mine defined it, and he's right. I mean, if you take the medications that we use in our pharmacologic armamentarium, they're poison. Each and every single one of them. If I give them to you and I walk away and I don't do what I do, you, you die. <laughs> Um, but we kind of we kind of balance the poisons to get the f- desired effect, so to speak, right. um, so that we have the optimal operative conditions. And then I wake you up and you go home. Wow! Pretty powerful. Super powerful. Yeah. And also, I mean, like you said, it wasn't all bad with those kids. But your job is to keep people alive through doing that, right? So that they can get to the next step, right? And with that responsibility, sometimes there aren't the outcomes that you want, but most of the time there is, and that's a yeah. powerful place to be. Yeah. And that's a, what a gift you give the world, Faye. Oh. And, you know, I mean, respect that. That's amazing. So let's get into um, how you found out that you had breast cancer. Okay. So um, my mom who uh, was 70 at the time, was uh, had something called DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. Okay? Some people regard that, a lot of people regard that as a pre-cancerous type condition. They, they actually call it stage zero okay. breast cancer. Um, but she was 70 when she was diagnosed. She was postmenopausal. She had an excisional biopsy. She was done. 
she didn't want to take the tamoxifen because my father read all the side effects of the tamoxifen. She refused to take it. And she was done. And my mother, you know, went along. And she's 10 years out and she's fine. Um, she has a, she had a sister though who, um, I always thought of as my aunt who wore wigs because when she was in her early 40s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in Taiwan, had a radical mastectomy. I still remember catching a glimpse of her with that horrific scar. Um, yeah, and she always wore wigs. She passed eventually uh, from, not from breast, but actually from lung cancer later on in life. So I knew that I had this in my family. And, you know, I would go and get my yearly mammograms. I'd started doing that fairly early, like probably my late 30s, late mid-30s I started. And I remember I was due for my mammogram. Um, And, you know, don't tell anyone this, but a lot of doctors write their own prescriptions. I won't. (laughs) For for themselves. Right. So I went to my, you know, made my appointment, my busy, busy schedule, went to see my OB uh, to write me the script to get the mammogram, get my yearly pap smear, whatnot. And she examines me. She's like, oh, I feel something up here in, you know, right upper quadrant. Oh, it's probably nothing. It's probably just a cyst or whatever, fibroadenoma, the benign mass. Um, but here, here's a prescription for the mammogram. So I scheduled the mammogram to be done like a month later. <laughs> Because that's my next day off. Um, but then two days later, I happened to um, I happened to uh, get out early for whatever reason. So I call up to the the mammography people who I know because um, I all some of the nurses there I used to work with in our recovery room. I said, "Hey, you got any cancellations? Can you fit me in?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, Doctor Shen, come on in." So I went in, um, got the mammogram, and then. Um, the radiologist comes out, who's actually the wife of one of my colleagues. Um, yeah, he's an anesthesiologist. She's, she's a breast radiologist. And she says to me, she's like, okay, Theo, you know, we really need to biopsy, we really need to biopsy this. And I'm like, okay, well, um, I've got three things to do this afternoon. <laughs> so can you hurry it up? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah um, uh, but I can't, she's, she wants me to wait. I'm like, I, I can't wait. I'm like, I'll, I'll come back, I'll come back in a month. You know, for my scheduled appointment when you have my, you know, my next day off, I'll come yeah. and I'll do it. She's like, no, Theo, really, really, honestly, please, please stay. Let, 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 me, let me biopsy this. And um, the reason she wanted me to stay was because she knew, she knew. looking at my mammo, that it was malignant, wow. that it was cancer. She but she, did, she couldn't tell me because she didn't have Obviously, yeah. proof. She didn't have the the biologic material. Right. She didn't have the pathology report. But she knew, because that's what she does for a living. And so she finally twists my arm. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll stay. I'll cancel my kids' appointments or whatever. And I stayed. I had the biopsy. The next day, I'm in the OR. <laughs> I'm working with, you know him. I'm working with Dan. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's doing a reconstruction on someone post-breast cancer, a second-stage breast reconstruction. And I get the call from her, my breast radiology friend, saying, it's cancer. Mm. And I, I, I was floored. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. I was like, 
oh my god, I'm like really like no, this this can't be happening. This this oh, you got it mixed up. Someone else, yeah, like yeah. really, like like no, you know, like I, like I'm a doctor. I'm not supposed to get sick. Absolute denial. <laughs> like, yeah. I was told. And so I remember I had to get someone to get me out of that case. I couldn't stay there and take care of that patient. I couldn't hardly take care of myself. Of course. And so I remember calling the guy who was running the schedule. And I could hardly, I'm like sobbing into the phone. And, and I'm like, like, you have to come get because, and I could hardly say, I'm like, because I could hardly say the words because I have been told I have cancer. I, I could hardly spit the words out. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's how I uh, found out. Wow, Faye. Wow. So, from there, that's Curveball 2011. Yeah. That was in 2011, I take it, right? That's the title? Yep. All yep, right. it was 2011. So, in here, so I'm just going to, I had these questions for you in the beginning, just as a preface. Okay. This book is so beautifully written with an outline, and just to keep everything on, on track a little bit, for those listening, uh, at the age of 45, I was throwing my curveball. I was diagnosed, diagnosed with breast cancer. Dedications. At the beginning, a friend who had two years prior walked the path I was about to begin told me, when this is all over, you will look back and realize that this was just a bump in the road of your life. But at that moment, my bump seemed much more like an insurmountable mountain I had to climb. These are a few thoughts and lessons I learned as I crossed my bump in the road. So, Fee, hindsight right now for anyone listening that it may seem like a mountain to. Mm-hmm. Is it all perspective, the mountain and the bump? Is it, is it relative to what you're going through at the time? What, how would you break that down for anyone right now? It's a mountain you have to climb. It is a mountain. Totally. And then as you, as, is the mountain, after you climb and as you climb the mountain, as you put one foot in front of the other, you know, you're just that one step further up that mountain. And that's how you, that's how I kind of dealt with it. You take one step. You, you, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but literally you take one step. There's a time. reason things are cliche because, yeah, it, they're, because they're they bring true. true. Yeah. Right, right. And, and you kind of have to sort of, you can't look at, Sometimes you just have to look what's right in front of you and say, okay, this is what I need to do. Hmm. And this is the steps that I'm going to take to do them. And you got to break it up. You can't, otherwise you kind of drive yourself crazy. I think, you know, you go from like, oh my gosh, it's this and this and this and this. And no, it's, it's one foot in front of the other. It's one step at a time. And yes, you know, when you look back, is it, could you say it's relative? But you know, it's 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 your it's experience. A mount. Yeah, it is. It's experience. your mountain. We all have we all have mountains to climb in life. Yeah, we all do. But spoiler alert: at the end, where you ask your friend, and he says that'll always be a part of your life. It's nothing that right. you get to forget. Same with me. It's always a part of our life. Right. It's like we climb this mountain, and there's other ones that we're, we get to climb right now, and it's always there. It's in the landscape as a little speed bump that we remember. Yeah. So it's just like what you're going through, you're climbing specific mountains, but you're in that mountain range. You can look back out and they're on the horizon still always. They're always in your, in your your vision, so to speak. And a part of you, part of you, I mean, what makes you, you makes you, your, it's your experience. Part of a special club, part of a special club. Right. 
So days after my diagnosis, I saw a mother at the park. She was carrying her infant while her toddler chased after her. She was young, tall, and bald. I remember thinking, my God, she is so beautiful. She has such courage. I don't have that kind of courage. Well, I was wrong. Was this mother going through treatment also, or she was just happened to be bald? It was just a sign for you. I honestly don't know. So you I don't think know it was her. a sign. Honestly, yeah, I think it was a sign because about. you have two kids. You were you were about to go through what you were about to go through with that, yeah. and and you it was a moment to yeah. put something a little little snippet in front of you to to reflect upon. Right. Define courage. What do you mean by the courage in here? Because she had. She has such courage. I don't have that kind of courage. I was wrong. So what did you feel that you were lacking at the moment? And hindsight, what would you offer out to everyone listening as far as the courage and what you get to muster up? I guess, well, one, the courage to, well, she, she was living her life. She was out there. She was taking care of her young children. She didn't have anyone else with her. She was you know, getting on with it, okay? Getting on with life. Also, let's face it, we're if, all vain. If, if, she, if, she was, if she was indeed battling. Yes, so you were, you were projecting I this. I was projecting, And yes. you, were, you were living vicariously through this picture. Yes, Go yes, ahead. you're yeah. right. I, do, I don't know. I never... No, it's great. I'm just saying... I never approached her. I never saw her in town again. But how um, amazing, right? So now you're, you're, you're projecting this, and you're, you're actually seeing yourself with your two kids getting on with it, but you didn't even know it at the time. Right. It's so right. awesome. Right. Um, and they're all a little vain, like you were saying. And we're all vain. <laughs> we're all very vain. I'll say it. Rolling. Yeah. And I had well, you've seen pictures. You you you've met my daughter, Grace. Yeah. Her hair? Yeah. That was my hair. I had this thick, black, long hair past my shoulders that um <laughs> the woman who cuts my hair used to come and she's like, You could be in a in a shampoo commercial. <laughs> yeah. Hair. Mm-hmm. I had that hair. And I knew I knew it was going to be gone. Right. And I also, and also, um, I knew that the surgery I had in front of me was going to be disfiguring. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we're all vain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, you and want the world, and, and you know I'm a control freak, and so you, you want the world to see a certain image you have a certain image of yourself that you would like the world to see. And, you know, we're all very controlling of that. I mean, my God, how many, how much time do people like spend on their hair, right? You know, hairdresser, dyeing it, doing this, doing that, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're, it's, it's an attempt to sort of control how others perceive you. Yeah. And, and, and I was facing a disease that was going to take, well, it was taking, away my control of my life yeah at that moment now fast forward mm-hmm. at the end of the book mm-hmm. you don't even want your hair back no it's funny I was talking to Grace about that today yeah um, because some people have seen that that picture in the uh, in the paper okay mm-hmm. in, in the editorial ad and um, their comment to me is my gosh she looks like you and except she has the hair, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, 
Yeah. I'm, you know what? I'll have to admit that um, I never wore my wig. Well, you look amazing. You look amazing. Oh, you're very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> Powerful. I, I never, I, I remember the day, oh my God, I remember the day I shaved my head. It was the day of my daughter's dance recital. It's a mm-hmm. Sunday, June 12th. <laughs> Daughter, my daughter's dance recital. Oh, I get my period for the very last time, of course, to add insult injury. And I'm in the bathroom, and I look down on the shower floor, and I see all this hair. And I get out of the shower, and I'm like, gosh, why is my hair all tangled and matted? And I realize it's all falling out. Mm. It's all falling out. Because I was at this point, I was about two and a half two, two and a half weeks after my first round of chemo. That's mm. when your hair falls out. Yeah. And I'm like sobbing because it didn't matter. I couldn't, I could hardly dry it. I could hardly move it. I could hardly do any because it was just falling out. And I could tell, I could see my scalp. My scalp was very white. Obviously, it's not sun exposed. Mm. And um, yeah, it was horrible. And I, my hairdresser, my friend, she had told me, she said, <clears throat> when the day comes, you need to shave your head. Call me. I'll do it. We'll do it in the salon so you don't have to deal with the mess at home, sir. So I call her up. I'm sobbing. And I'm like, Dina, you, you know, you need, I need you to shave my head. And she's like, and, I'm like I'm, and I remember saying something like, but can we do it tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> because, just like your, just like your, <laughs> your biopsy. Right. Yeah. Can we do it tomorrow? Because, you know, Grace has this I'm dance busy. recital. Yeah. Maybe I can make like, what's left work. So I have to show up to this dance recital while, uh-huh. you know, whatever, and, and, and stuff. And, and she's like, and, and, her, and, her, and I, and I remember saying to her, she's like, well, you know, she, she had childcare issues, so really like doing it that day, that Sunday was really the better day. And, and then she, she says to me, I feel, there's no good day for a woman to shave her head. That's the other line in the book. Yeah. There's no good day for a woman to shave her head. Yep. That's her line. And I remember thinking, you know, she's right. There is no good day. <laughs> There's never a good day to shave your head. Um, so I said to her, I'm like, okay, can we, uh, can you, um, give me a few minutes? I need to think about this. So we're hanging up the phone with her and I'm like, I took a few minutes to think. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do it. So we went, she shaved my head and I look up, <clears throat> you know, she's been crying the whole time. Yeah. Um, I had bought a wig. I had, uh, uh, planned for this, me being the planner and got picked out a wig and she puts it on my head, and I look at myself, and I'm like, Nope. No. No. I, yeah. it, it, I was like, no. I, yeah. And she starts, her mother had breast cancer, and, and her mother, you know, she, so, so my friend is like, real, she's like, okay, let me fix it. I'll fix it. So she, because she's really good at it, she's like, I can yeah, do yeah. a wig. I can fix the wig. And so she's like, futzing with it, futzing with it, snipping it. And I was like, and I just remember saying, I'm like, I remember like saying, I'm like, um, no, I felt like, honestly, I, I felt like with the wig on, I felt like I was hiding. I felt like I was I totally get it. ashamed, like I, yeah, it wasn't me. Mm. It just, I put it on, I'm like, this is not me. Mm. 
I felt like I was, it was almost like I felt like I, I put, when she put it on me, I felt like I'd become a totally different person. Like I was cowering. Mm. And at that point, I was like, no, I, this, this, this is not, this is not me. And so I, I had her take the wig off, put it back on a little mannequin. <laughs> and I had a baseball hat and I put it on my head and I left. Good for you. And I remember walking into my daughter's dance recital. Well, I was wearing a dress. I would never wear a baseball hat with a dress. Mm-hmm. So I walked in without anything in my head. And I will tell you, it was it was incredibly liberating. It was very empowering because basically I'm I've got the time I didn't maybe I couldn't articulate it, but as someone put to me, it was like I was saying, okay, cancer, F you. Exactly. You know what? I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to cower. You know, you're not going to, you know, and you're not going to change who I am or how I see myself mm-hmm. because I have no hair. And, and you know, I have to say, I did embrace the bald. The bald. Yeah. I mean, you look, I mean, you look focused. I mean, well, I did those pictures after my last round of chemo. I did it because... My children were very little, and um, I didn't know what they would remember. Mm-hmm. The picture on the front of the book, that was the only picture I had. So let me talk about that picture in the front of the book. So those are my twin yeah. boys. Yeah. Okay. That's Ryan and Matthew. Okay. So here I am. I've shaved my head. It's a week later. I'm sitting in my family room feeling like shit, because I've gotten another round of chemo. Yeah. And... Um, my husband walks in with them, and I look up, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're bald. <laughs> and my husband says to me, yeah. They went to the barber, they sat down in chairs next to each other, and they told the barber, they're like, you know what, we want to look like our mom. Okay? And they described it to the barber, not at all. <laughs> and then I guess apparently one of them, they get the buzz cut. You know, I guess there's the numbers on the buzz cut. Mm-hmm. Like the zero, the one, the two, I don't know. Go lower, go yeah, lower, go, go lower. lower. Right. So, so they get the buzz cut. And then one of them looks up and my husband says, and he says to Barbara, he starts crying. He's like, no, that's not what my mother looks like. It's got to be shorter. Oh, right. And so, yeah, I, I, I. They went through their own little experience. They went through their own little experience. But I was like floored that they would. Honor you in that in, way. In solidarity Support. with me. Now, of course, my daughter's like, don't, don't look at me that yeah. way. I'm not going to do it. Don't even think about it, Mom. <laughs> don't even think I'll about support it. you in some other ways. Right, exactly. <laughs> but not that. But not that. So, yeah, so that picture. So, anyway, so that was the only picture I had. And um, I didn't know what my children would remember, like I said. So, good friend of mine, um, you, know, you know, Mariah. She doesn't do photography anymore, but she was a photographer at the time. Mm-hmm. She agreed to take the pictures in her home. And um, yeah, so I did it after my last round of chemo, mm. um, before my hair grew back. Mm. So that's how I have those pictures. Awesome. And she was the one who said to me, okay, these pictures are beautiful. These pictures need words. She's like, I hear words. Yeah. I hear words. I need words. Good for Mariah. So then I put the words to it. And then um, I shared it with the book. I shared it with a few people who were very close to it. It was supposed to be just for my family. Mm-hmm. And they saw it, and they're like, wow, you know, you need to, like, share this on a broader level. 
I'm like, okay. No, all right, maybe, maybe. I'll think about it. Because some of them were like asking for a copy of it. I'm like, well, okay, well, you know, we'll see. Then I went back to work. Um, I went back to work, and within that year, there must have been five women who were diagnosed that I knew, that I worked with. And they all came to me because... Yeah, you, you, you go to someone who's been there, done it, who's climbed that mountain, mm-hmm. okay? Asking me for advice to help them climb their mountain. And what I found was that everything I said to them, the advice I gave them, it was already written down somewhere mm-hmm. in my book. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I should share with them. And so that's how the book evolved. Wow. It really was to. It was really for. It was really for them because, like I said, it, the women who came forward and shared with me. Oh my gosh! I mean, just you know, I'm not talking again. You can say they're all cliched, nothing earth shattering, but just I think to see them, to know that you know what, in, for like these nurses at, at the hospital I work with, who, who they saw me come back from it. Okay, come back. I'm strong. I'm active. I'm living my life. You did it. You think right? They need that, but you need that role model. Absolutely. You know, like when you think of cancer, you, everyone thinks of always. It's so oh, the debilitated, the you know, the people with all the horrific consequences and complications and stuff, yeah. and people who are not functional. But you know, but you you can be. You 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 know, yeah. You yeah. Right. So. Your port and storm fee. They need a port. <laughs> they need a lighthouse. Something yeah. to lock into right. while they're while they're floating around out there. Right. While they're climbing their own mountain. Right. They need a was it a Sherpa yeah. up ahead of them. <laughs> exactly. Right. To you know right. drive the the pegs or the stakes into the mountain and help them secure the line. Yep. Till they can get up and over and then they can take a breath with you. Yeah. But it's not easy to find that path on your own. No. So no, and it's, it's also it's like I said it's. To know that other, I mean, well, here's, to here, know that other women have done it. Well, here's a perfect segue for that. So mm-hmm. here, and I'm, this is, you, this is in two parts of the book. So I'm going to go a little out of order here. You absolutely do reap what you sow in life. The outpouring of love, compassion, and support from my family, friends, coworkers, and casual acquaintances blew me away. Now I'm going to jump to the back for a second. Accept mm-hmm. the help people offer you. From walking the dog to driving my kids, to cooking meals, to planting flowers outside my front door. So many people wanted to help me. I initially was very reluctant to accept any of their generosity. I always prided myself on being able to, quote unquote, do it all, period. But in the end, I greatly appreciated all the love, positive energy, and support that emanated from every gesture of kindness. So, can you elaborate on that feeling? So here you are telling me you wrote this book to give back to these women. Mm-hmm. And then any advice as to, you know, this quote unquote control freak or just anybody being mm-hmm. out of control, you know, that's this just like being vain. It's, it's in our human condition to want to control. Mm-hmm. And uh, hence the repetitive cycles that we live in our lives until we bring awareness to those going on a, on a kind of a different tangent. Yet here you are saying, okay, now I'm out of control. 
And now I'm going to accept help and just the ability to even break out of that belief system mm-hmm. to be humbled enough that you can't do it all on your own and to be able to, in, in and of itself, it was a journey to accept support. Yeah. And uh, I'd like it if you can just to elaborate on like what that felt like and for anyone else listening, what to look for and, and how to let that happen in your life. How to let it happen, Jesus. I think I just kind of had to sort of let it happen. I mean, surrender. yeah, it was it was surrender. Right, I had to just. It, I'm very. We're all very proud people. Okay, we all have our pride, and I wanted to. Wanted to be yeah, like. I think it was probably mainly for my children that I didn't want them to see me weak. Yeah. So to speak. I didn't want others to see me weak. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I had to project this aura or face of, no, it's fine. Yeah. I can do it. No problem. You know, everything's My house okay. is always clean. Everything's always perfect. Everything's the la- perfect. I never have laundry. That's right. Everything's <laughs> always put away. Yeah. Not a dust but bunny not. in the house. You know, yeah. And, and to... To be laying there and have people... I remember having people come in and you're like, you have no energy yeah. to even try to do it. Let right. it so, and, and it's right. going through your mind and you're like, oh my oh God, my I'm God. almost captive to letting this person help me. And it's a huge right. surrender just to be right. like... Like I feel... Yeah. I felt like, oh my God, I can't... I, yeah. They're going to do the... Uh, uh, you know, but you can't look at it that way. You can't look at it that way. People don't look at you like again. It was it was all my thing. Like exactly. I didn't want to be perceived as weak. So you're a nerd. It's our it's our own <laughs> it's our own nerd coming out. And um, yeah, and they want, but they wanted they they feel like everyone wants to help. Well, then you know what? Let them do something concrete mm-hmm. to help. I mean, well wishes and fruit baskets they're great, but you know what? But a home cooked meal, boom, boom. Picking up my kids from school, getting my kids from school, walking my dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know the flowers outside my front. I mean, yeah. When I look back at all of that, I am so touched mm-hmm. by all those people who wanted to do that for me. And 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 we're not talking. And the people who you know, who did things for me. I don't want to say they were all like my best friend or, or anything. No, they were just just people out of out of Kindness. Almost the ones you least expect, right? No, I wouldn't say that per se. But just, just there's, there's so much. There's, I think there's a lot more kindness and generosity out there than sometimes you we we realize. Yeah, you know. Well, there is because sometimes people come out of the woodwork that I would never expect to do something, and they show up, and I'm like, Yeah, wow, thank you. Right. And they're like, Well, you've been showing up for me like this, and I'm like. Yeah. So my consistency and whatever you've been doing, your right. consistency, it pays forward. It pays forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, you know, I, I if the way I kind of live my life, you know, one of those things like tennis, I start trying to show children is, you know, if you can, we all appreciate acts of kindness. Okay. I'm not looking for you to reciprocate. Every act of kindness. I mean, I'm kind because I think it's the right thing to be genuinely. It's your authentic kind. way. Yeah. yeah, and there's, and and is there a downside to being kind? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not. Yeah. But again, I'm not looking for reciprocity. I'm just. It's it's the act of. 
kindness. Right, but it comes back when it's supposed to. Right, but then, yeah, it it comes back to you. Mm. It does come back to you because I will tell, I mean, I was floored. I was absolutely floored at how much support I got. That's a beautiful thing. And yeah, like I said, they weren't, they weren't all my besties. Right. <laughs> okay, I mean, we're talking like... Watch that arm, the uh, chair arm, if you just shift. Okay. No, no, you're, uh, the chair, just shift off the chair a little bit. Like, move it away from the table so it doesn't hit on. Okay. That's it. Got it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be your, your closest family and your best friends. No. It doesn't have So, quote unquote, surrender. Surrender is a big part of the journey. Surrendering, surrendering to that it's happening and surrendering to the fact that it's okay to ask for support. Mm-hmm. You know, call for coaching, get support. It's okay. Let it happen. And especially concrete things, you know, right. sending light and love and flowers and prayers is all great. All but, awesome. Well, thank you. But yeah, a meal is even yeah, better. Yeah. <laughs> a good meal. Oh, yeah. So after surrender, this is another beautiful segue. It's okay to cry. In the beginning, I cried a lot. I remember wondering out loud to a friend when all this crying was going to stop. To me, crying was synonymous with weakness. In a high-stress profession, I am at my best when caring for a critically ill infant in the operating room. My game face is on. I am calm, rational, and decisive. Why couldn't I be this way for myself? Then I realized I am now the patient. Someone else has to be the doctor. So... This to me is, is very profound because I understand that on a on the level of of just what it is is that you're actually a doctor. You're used to treating somebody. Now someone else is going to be the doctor, and you get to pay, be the patient. And it's a reversal of roles from what you're used to in your life. I get that, but this is also some deep inner chi- inner child work now that you're doing here. That it's okay to cry and embrace this, and and to now you've surrendered. Now you're now you're embracing what's happening with this disease and and this cancer, and now not only has your role entangled, but you're sitting in the seat where you've seen so many before that you do day in and day out. Right. What was that like? I hate being the patient. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. At work, we <laughs> we always make the comment. I'm like, oh, I'm just happy I'm not the patient. Just glad I'm not the patient. Yeah, gratitude for that, right? Yeah, just not not to be the one on the yeah that side. Um, yeah, it was like as I said earlier, I, I felt like oh geez, I'm the doctor, so I, I had some magical thinking going on that I was never, I couldn't get sick, I can't possibly have cancer. What do you mean? I'm a physician. I take care of people and illness and things like that. There's no way. Like I thought I was going to get like a, you know, get out of jail free card, so to speak. We're concerned illness, but you know, I was wrong. Yeah. I was really wrong. And I think, you know, the whole thing with the crying, you know, being raised Asian, um, my father very much frowned upon the crying. We are all taught. You're Asian? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, culturally, we're, it, we tend to be very, um, you, you don't show your emotions. Yeah. You never give away your emotions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew up thinking, okay, not going to cry. If I cry in front of my dad, ooh, it's going to be 10 times worse if I cry in front of my dad. <sighs> and then, you know, doing what I do for a living, 
um, surgeons aren't, aren't exactly the easiest people to get along with at times. Mm-hmm. And if they smell weakness, oh, yeah, they they come, they then they'll go for you. And you know, and 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 I, yeah, I found that being a young appearing Asian petite woman. <laughs> I have to, there's a persona that I have to kind of project, okay, mm-hmm. in order for someone not to give me crap, mm-hmm. in order for someone, uh, if I were tall, white, and male, I would be given a lot more credibility, or I would need to, to do very little to establish my credibility, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm a petite Asian woman, mm-hmm. and so... Yeah, I mean, my God, if I if I broke down and cried every time I wanted to cry when someone like said or did something to me at work, oh my God, no way, that would not work. Right. So you sort of have to project. I, I guess I've just grown so accustomed to projecting this, the image that I want to project, what I yeah. want you to believe. Yeah. <laughs> and see that this is, okay, this is the doctor who's going to be taking care of my child today, who's in charge, who knows what she's doing, who's in command, da, da, da. Right. you know, surgeon has a question, things aren't going well during procedures, you know, whatnot, but you've got the answer for it. You're going to take care of it. Right. And so, but after I got diagnosed, so, yeah. Sophia, I want to unpack what you just said for a second, because I think there were three things in there that really stood out to me in between. Mm-hmm. One was what I intuitively picked up on, which was what a what a healing experience from when you were a child. You're wondering when the crying was going to stop and here, maybe just not for this particular um, moment in your life and dealing with this disease, but it was all a culmination and it, 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 it all uh, exacerbated and or compounded up until this point of not being able to cry in front of your father, holding all these things in as you were a child. And then here mm-hmm. is just this explosion, this, this amazing healing release, which, which, you know, they quote unquote, they, the proverbial they, they say that the, um, it gets to leave the body the same way it comes in. So you have all that pain built up, which again, looking and reflecting on, on my, my, my own experience is like, what, what emotionally or psychologically was happening to me or from a psychosomatic standpoint that may have affected my physiology mm-hmm. or that, that I was holding on to, what, you know, which way did it go? Mm-hmm. And maybe that was even part of the healing process. Like what was holding on so much that was building in there, building in there that was, that had manifested it, that energy in the form of a cancer that then, if you believe in that type of stuff, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in my experience and getting it more into the spiritual metaphysical aspects of things that then explode and then mm-hmm. show up. And that's why, that's why here it's to, it's to experience your highest self so that you can listen to the body, you can listen to yourself mm-hmm. before it screams with, God forbid, disease or injury. Mm-hmm. So that's so to me that was very profound when I read that. You know, when was the crying going to stop? And it's on like it's okay to cry, mm-hmm. like period, like boom. Then the other thing that I heard you say was that you're also dealing with being a woman in the workplace, mm-hmm. yeah, and the whole challenge of not only being Asian and a minority. Mm-hmm. And not only being a woman in the workplace and having to stand up with all the quote unquote like what you see on TV, what a doctor looks like or whatever. Right, which right. Might, I mean, I think could be Asian too, though. Fee. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, but then, at, but from a woman's perspective, yes. And then, and now you have this to deal with on top of it, right? 
than to give you per- yourself permission mm-hmm. to have that happen. And then the third thing that I wanted to unpack with you is uh, if at all you feel this changed your bedside manner moving forward. Because in my experience, some people get uncomfortable when someone's so strong and and like like you said, what the belief that someone wants to put out there. And the more I'm able to interact with people and they show me that they're human or they may shed a tear or that, hey man, not everything's perfect. There's dust bunnies and laundry. Right. The easier it is to actually feel better about that, right? So did you ever have that experience to where now where you are, you're able to relate better and or form deeper connections or did anything change with the way you interact with with patients or with... You know, I've... I've, I've (laughs) I've wondered about that. I don't think so because I feel like I was pretty, I like to think that I was pretty in tune with my patients and very gentle and caring and, you know, I've been doing this for many years. <laughs> um, well, I would think you were gentle and caring and not that anything would, would, would change with your professionalism, but was there a little tweak with the fact that you didn't have to have that strong strong woman mask on anymore, that it was okay to be a little bit vulnerable? And in your vulnerability, did it give them? does it give them more power now? Hmm. I honestly don't know. I don't think I'm more vulnerable. I think, I mean, I, I, I try to be relatable. Hmm. I try to be very... Well, relatable is a form of vulnerability, I would say. Yeah, I tried to project caring, and but I, I, something must have changed because I, also, I, was, I, had, I had a freaky thing happen. So it was like a few years ago, and I was taking care of a cancer patient. She's waking up in the recovery room, um, having had a procedure. She just gotten the diagnosis that her her disease was now metastatic and it spread. And so, yeah, she was very, obviously very vulnerable and she's coming to and I'm talking to her and then she looks up at me and she says to me, you have cancer. She looks at me, looks me straight in the eyes, you have cancer. Now, I've not told her a thing, you know, about myself. And she says to me, she's like, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you and put you on my and I, I remember being like I, 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 I was like uh, yeah 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 yes I have cancer but I, I but I'm like but I'm fine now and I, I was like and it, it, it was weird because it happened it happened on the it was like the third or fourth anniversary of my diagnosis mm. it was that day mm. and I'm thinking oh my god I remember like running away from her bedside I'm like mm in my chairman's office and I'm sobbing. Mm. I was like, this is where I was three years ago, sobbing in this office, the same. It was kind of Now, weird. what was she dealing with? I think she was dealing with ovarian. So she was like dealing that. with some type of cancer yes, herself. Yes, she was, yes. So yes. there you go. There's a part of you, and maybe there not everyone us. sees it, but right. someone who's in tune like ourselves now may may recognize that, hey, you, you're way too, fr- this isn't your first time to this rodeo, and I'm not right. talking about as yeah. a doctor. So it's like I've racked my, I've told that story to a few of my colleagues, mm. and and they insist, like, oh, you must have said something. I'm like, no, I didn't say anything. Yeah. I, because that's not, I don't, yeah. come, I don't come forward and say that. Yeah. Um, because I'm there to take care of you. Exactly. I'm, right. I'm, I'm not there. I'm not. I'm not the patient today. You're the patient today. Yep. I'm here to take care of you. So, um, yeah. But I don't. But something. There must have been something, and how I said something, or 
my demeanor or something that made her come to the conclusion and the rightful conclusion that right. I'd been down this path. Right. Awesome. So. Awesome. That's awesome. Fee, this particular page really resonates with me. Mm. Be honest with your children. Without it, there is no foundation for trust, faith, or respect. How my children were going to endure depended very much on how I presented my new reality. Myung and I explained in, a very, con- in very concrete terms what was ahead for me. Myung's your husband? Yes. I encouraged my children to ask me any questions, and I answered them all truthfully, italicized. I was rocking their heretofore happy and secure world with tremendous uncertainty. They had to believe in me, come to me for their answers. Don't ever underestimate the ability of your children to understand, support, and love you. Now, this is very dear to my heart, Fee, because when I went through my experience, I didn't have any children. Mm -hmm. However, my mother passed from the same thing I had. And I didn't have this. I got walked, you know, one day my mm-hmm. aunt and my father walked in and sat me down and said, your mother's passed. And then, you know, there's a whole story from there. Mm-hmm. I knew she was in the house, but didn't get to visit her or I didn't How have that. How old were you? Six. Oh. So this was very cathartic, if you will, for me to read and to have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening to this, Absolutely, as someone who's been through it on both sides, myself and what Fiodor is about to break down and get get more in depth with is that kids are so intuitive; they oh understand. Absolutely, and, and by you pushing it down, you're pushing it down inside them. Yes, and you're not giving them the courage or the ability to deal with it. Yes, and you're not giving them the space to speak openly. Who else besides you can they speak openly right. about it with? Absolutely. Take every opportunity, regardless of your diagnosis. To there's an amazing movie out there. Um, something the, the the tree, the monster in the tree. Um, I'll I'll put it in, I'll put it back in the intro or something like that. It's with Liam Neil, Liam Nielsen. Um, it, maybe it'll come to me. Fate rocked my world, and it's all about a mother that's dealing with this mm-hmm. and how she lets her child know right. about her diagnosis and giving the child permission to be angry with her. Mm-hmm. Giving the child yep. permission to be angry with her and the situation and that it was okay. Right. And giving the child permission to be angry with the fact with her for that she, in, in this case, passed. Right. right. And how to deal with that. So, um, yeah, this, this really rung true to my heart. And I, if you wouldn't mind for everyone that's going to listen to this elaborating on how you had that conversation with your children and sure. yeah. So, um, yeah, I found out now I am all for telling your children, but I'm also believe that you need to do it in a, in a way that, that children can grasp at whatever age they are. Okay, mm-hmm. so my children were, Grace was 10 and my twins were uh, seven and a half. And you know what? Being concrete is, I think, very important. Um, telling them like what to expect, what's, what's next, you know, on the horizon. Um, so when I was first diagnosed, I did not tell them right away. Um, because 
I didn't have the answers. I didn't know what my treatment was going to look like. I didn't know. I knew I was going to have surgery, but I didn't have a date. Um, there were a bunch of things I didn't know, but I, I, I knew. So it was, I was diagnosed, it was on a Tuesday. Yep, the Tuesday I found out. Friday night, so a few days later, because so I got all my answers, okay? Knew what the plan was going to be. And my husband and I sat them down. We were, <laughs> this is going to sound very cliched, but it was right before spring break. We were scheduled to get on a plane Saturday to go to Disney for spring break. And part of me wanted to just cancel the whole trip, not go, because I'm not about to go to Disney. And my doctors and my husband were like, no, no, nothing's going to change in a week that you can't go to Disney. It's all planned. Let's just go to Disney. And, and that was like the best decision in the end. Um, I, mean, I can imagine. I mean, a real bonding time with your kids and what a great... Right. What a great, so, not dis- a distraction, but you know. Yeah. So, 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 so my daughter tells me now, Grace is now 16. She was 10 at the time. She told me she knew something was wrong that very day. She picked up, my daughter's very perceptive and she and I are close. Hmm. She picked up right away that something was not right. And she went after my husband <laughs> to tell her what the heck was going on with mom. Why is she like, you know, it's obvious she's been crying. It's obvious that, you know, she's not going to work tomorrow, but what is going on? Something something about her has changed. Hmm. And so my husband did tell her ahead of the scheduled time because she persisted. I give her credit for persisting. So um, anyway, so we sat them down Friday night. We were getting get on a plane Saturday and yeah, we told them. Like pretty, pretty matter of fact. Well, yeah, that yeah, mom's been diagnosed with juice breast cancer, and uh, yes, I know it sounds very scary. Um, and there's a lot of things that she has to do to to take care of this, and these these are the things that that she's going to do. So then we told them that I was going to have surgery the day after we came back from Disney. Um, that would be in the hospital a few days. And then based on what the surgery results showed, I might need special medicine called chemotherapy, which can make people really sick, you know. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, there were a lot of things that we didn't know, um, but that the plan, but this was the plan, and that, yes, we're, we are going to go to Disney. And I told my children, you have any questions, any questions, I don't care how... You may think not appropriate, whatever. Any questions, I want you to ask me. And that's what going on this vacation afforded us. And really, so we went to Disney. It rained every day. (laughs) And my kids were not happy. But you know what? But my husband and I are like, let's put on the raincoats. Let's get out the umbrellas. Because we're on vacation, and we're here to enjoy Disney. And we're going to go out, and we're going to... We're going to go out in the rain. And, you know, and to me, I, I kind of looked at it as like, it was a, there was a big metaphor that, yeah, you know what? It's going to rain in your life. But you get up and you go out and you get on with it. Yeah. You know? Don't let a little rain stop you. We're all together. Right? Yeah. We're all together. We're on vacation. Yeah. We're at Disney, for Christ's sake. There are yeah. lots of things to do with Disney indoors. 
okay? People don't realize, but there's stuff you can do. And we got on with it. And, and yeah, um, uh, my kids asked their questions. And of course, Grace, Grace has to ask the tough questions. <laughs> so Grace asks me, she says to me, she's like, Mom, um, so if you have breast cancer and grandma had breast cancer and grandma's sister had breast cancer, that means I'm going to get breast cancer. So she put this together at the age of 10. Mm. And I remember saying to her at the time, um, you know, you've got a long life to live, my dear, before you need to worry about getting breast cancer. And by the time you get it, it's going to be completely different. I bet the medicines will be different. The treatment will be different. Like I remember, you know, way back when, when I was a medical student, they used to do all sorts of, they do things then, but they don't do now because things evolve, medicine evolves. And who knows by then there may be, you know, there may not be any breast cancer. Mm. But so, yeah, like I remember saying that to her. Yeah. Well, not long ago. Um, yeah, you know, I can tell Grace right now when she listens to this that that's a beautiful response, and same thing happened to me, right? Mm-hmm. So God forbid, and 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 also for anyone listening, and Grace also, like, who knows what happened and why I got it? Was it hereditary? It's stage, yeah. stage two B um, Hodgkin's lymphoma. They say it's not hereditary, etc. But who knows? Mm-hmm. Was it epigenetics? Did I not because my my mother and everyone didn't come forth and bring me to the bedside and enable to me to, to process it and everything that we're speaking about mm-hmm. right now? Did I hold that in for so long and create my own journey to go through what my mm-hmm. mother did? There's all these theories that I've played through. Was it something subconscious that, that I created because we have that power to do so? However, the medicine had changed between when my mm-hmm. mother passed mm-hmm. in those 15, 20 years mm-hmm. and when I was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So that's absolutely spot on, Faye. Right. Beautiful. So um, you can only take each step and each day one at a time. And sometimes to take two steps forward, you take one step back. I celebrated my small daily victories and kept my setbacks in perspective. I think celebration of anything, small victories, mm-hmm. is, is the most important thing you can do because it, 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 the, the, the mind, the body literally reacts scientifically to gratitude. It produces different type of chemicals and endorphins and, 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 and manipulates your DNA and your physiology. Mm-hmm. And to, to have those celebrations um, and, and, to, and to know what those little victories are. I got out of bed today. Right. When we practice fee. Attitude of gratitude, just to be able to walk in and stand on this mat today, just to be able to move today. Yep. How many people, and when you, especially when you're in class and some of the other nurses and stuff like that, that are, that work in the hospital with you and the, the, the power there, because I mean, they're getting off of a shift or going to a shift Mm -hmm. to care for a patient that could not, if they wanted to come to this class today, like it's so in perspective. Yes. Absolutely. What a victory. What a blessing just to be able to do that. Yes. Um, life's not fair. Get over it. Accept what people offer you. We went through that. Mm-hmm. It's a privilege for someone to sit in the front row of your life. Here we go with this one. I mm-hmm. love this. 
Not everyone deserves admission. Regulate your naysayers and detractors to the rear balcony. Or maybe just see them out of the theater. (laughs) we'll, We'll usher them out for each other. You cannot change the people around you, but you can change the people you are around. Yep. Why'd you write that? Why'd I write that? I, I think yeah. you want people around you who you know are in your corner, who you know have your back, so to speak, mm-hmm. more than ever, especially mm-hmm. in a situation like this. And mm-hmm. you want, and you want, and, and I think, yeah, I think it's who you, I think it's important who you surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. And if there are people who are pulling you down, man, be done with them. Mm. You don't need them. Right. Right? It's almost like little cancers within your life. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, we all know someone who's like, oh, that person's like, you know, driving me crazy and, and just the naysayers. And you know what? There's, I, I, I don't have energy for that. I don't have time for that. Yeah. So, yeah. I get it. Yeah. And um, there's detractors. There's detractors in life that um, I don't think. I mean, you didn't have anybody that tell you that that was a naysayer as far as as far as what your outcome was going to be. But this was more as it just gave you such a clear perspective that that stuff doesn't really matter. There's such limited time, right? And then I'm going to focus on what's going to build me up, right? Exactly. Similar to like not reading all the comments in social media when you put out a certain product because not everyone's going yeah. to align gotta, with you. Like, you just right. got to go. do what you do and keep it moving. Right. And um, whether you're battling cancer or not, that's, right. those are words of right. wisdom. Right. But I have to say, though, on the flip side, I remember my husband threw me a little party uh, at my five-year mark, um, which also coincided with my 50th birthday. And I had a room of friends there, and I also and I gave a little speech, and in it I said something to the effect of, you know, I know I said this that yeah, it's a privilege for someone to sit in the front row if you like, but you know what? But I'm also the one privileged too. Yes, I'm privileged to have you mm-hmm. sit and sit in my that you want to sit in my front That's row. That's right. That is a huge privilege. Yeah, because you know, yeah, not everybody's going to give you that. That's right. So yeah, I I feel like I've I'm very privileged because all these people want to be these amazing people want to be in my front row. Well, most likely they want you to be in theirs also. Yes, true. Right. So I mean <laughs> I that's so. how that's how it works. That's how it works. That's yeah. the reciprocity we're talking about. That is about, how it right? works. Yes. Sophie, really no need. I'm going to read this, but if you want to elaborate, you can. But I think it speaks for itself. How you see yourself is how others see you. So hair or no hair, stand tall. Walk with confidence, carry on with life, and smile. After all, it is your inner beauty that matters most. And then um, we'll end. We'll end with this, and then we can uh, re- uh, recap on anything you like. But mm-hmm. at the end here, you put yesterday is history, tomorrow mystery, today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Master Ugwe from Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> Why'd you put that there? Why'd I put that there? Because I, I, I am someone who was always so focused on tomorrow, 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 what next, what next, what next, what next. And I never, I'm not someone who likes, like, hey, let's just enjoy today. Let's just enjoy. I, I'm very not 
of the moment sort of person. I'm always looking forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you got to stop. Smell the roses. Smell the roses. Medical shake. Yeah. But it holds yeah. truth. And I think it is absolutely amazing the dualism that's inside something like this disease or letting, uh, losing somebody, um, like all things. But from my personal experience with cancer also, it really makes you stop and pause mm-hmm. and realize how vulnerable and how valuable life can be. Yes. You can't take it for granted. Yeah. And, and there's also dualism with pausing also with being in the present because, you know, having the wisdom to pause, breathe, know you're there, but also continuing to move with a sense of urgency. So there's that balance for me because, yes, I want to stop and enjoy everything. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of set some type of standard to do so. But at the same time, life is so short that I just want to like share the passion and get leave the breadcrumb trail and get all the information out. And I'm so driven to do so. Right. So it's a balance of stopping to do that but not stopping too much so that you're still making you know yeah. making all that progress i found yeah so yeah Fee, is there anything else you'd like to to share uh i just want to plug my charity if i <laughs> if Please i can do. so um it, it, basically you know if you were to ask me why is it i support bcrf i'm going to say it's for grace okay i know you mentioned her before so um yeah, so she asked me that question when she was 10, you know, whether I'm getting cancer. I gave her an answer. And, I didn't, and, then, and then the years went on, and I didn't think it really meant anything, you know, affect her or whatnot. Well, when she was 13, she had to write an essay about the most important person in her life. She wrote about me. Wow. Um, right now I'm going to start crying. <laughs> her words are beautiful. And I was very touched. But she then turned to me and she said, but mom, I don't want to be you. I don't want to have cancer. And I remember like it took, I was, uh, like I stopped breathing. Mm. It took, it was like you, someone just like stabbed me in the heart. Mm. And she said that to me because yes, you know, this is a part of me. It's a part of my life. I carry the monkey on my back. Another cliche. But I didn't realize that my 13-year-old daughter was carrying one in her pocket. Mm-hmm. And I was, I remember being so angry, angry that this isn't right. It's not right for a 13-year-old to have to worry about this. Yeah. And I didn't know what to say to her. And then I realized, um, yeah, that, you know, that my husband had told me about this charity. So, um, we'll elaborate about it uh, more here. So, it was founded in 1993 by Evelyn Lauder and her husband, Leonard, um, the founders of Estee Lauder Cosmetics. Okay? Mm. Evelyn Lauder was diagnosed with breast and ovarian, subsequently ovarian cancer, and she passed from the ovarian cancer. And they, they asked the question, what can we do? And um, in conjunction with her physicians and staff at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, they formed this um, foundation. Okay, and what they do is they fund research. Okay, because the answer, the answer for my daughter, the answer for anyone who has, you know, cancer and has a daughter, is research. We want to stop this disease. We want to cure the disease. It, it's all through research okay and 
But research is expensive. Research costs money. People don't realize that, you know, for every, you know, big pharma gets, I feel like a bum rap. Okay, they're like, oh my gosh, why do drugs cost so much? Blah, blah, blah. So, but what people don't realize is that for every drug that makes it through phase three clinical trials, okay, there's so many drugs that were a bust. But just because they're a bust, they're a bust, they don't make money, they, don't, they go nowhere, okay? But it, you, you gotta, but it costs money to figure this out. Trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, over and over and over again until you get the big hit, okay? And yeah, you look at a pharmaceutical company's budget, it's R&D. R&D is like 80%. Marketing is 20%. (laughs) R&D is 80% and people don't realize, yeah, research costs money. Clinical trials costs money. And so the money this organization raises, like 91 cents of every dollar goes to research. And they're... One of the top-rated charities. Specifically for breast cancer. For breast cancer, right. You look at the others. I'm not going to name them. For women, though? I don't know if you know, Fee, my father's a breast cancer survivor. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so breast, yes, breast cancer, yeah. Almost lost mm-hmm. my father to it. Ugh. So, um, yeah, if you're going to give your money to someone, you give it to them. My husband, who is a PhD molecular biologist, you know, he... Uh, he looked at their, they have a scientific advisory board. He looked at everything they were doing. And then he looked up all the grants that they were giving and who they gave them to and, and what they were doing with the money. And he's like, these are the people. They know what they're doing. They mm-hmm. totally know what they're doing with the money. So that is why I lend my, I'm happy to lend my face and my, my and this was name. Who, and this was who the shoot was for. This was who the shoot was for. That's, yes, BCRS. Awesome. Yes. Great. Um, Grace, I was thinking of your daughter. Um, Fee, I also want to take this time to piggyback that and plug Good Grief. Do you know the Good Grief Foundation in Morristown? No, I don't. Mm-mm. So God forbid you guys are dealing with anything like this uh, with breast cancer. You have what Fiodor just said with her organization. But there's an organization called Good Grief, and they're located in Morristown, right over here, I believe, on side. I believe that's uh, down on yeah Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And then they have another one in Princeton. But regardless of the street, just Google Good Grief, and it's in... Uh, in Marstown and or Princeton. And basically what they have is, this is one of the most beautiful things. Anyone has a chance to go check it out, please go check it out. And if you know anybody who has lost uh, a parent or family member and there's children that, that are, uh, that are struggling with anything like that, um, that don't have the good fortune like my children do to have me sitting here or Fiodora's children do to have her sitting here. Um, that's not always the outcome. Like Fee started out this conversation with, with even, even, uh, premature babies dying. So what they do there is they have, they make it okay because I remember growing up feeling very isolated and it was also very cathartic experience for me to go back and walk through the good, when I went there, the, the, the young child and me was starting to feel very healed and being like, man, like I was telling him it was okay what, what I went through as a child and, and, and what I felt fee because they have a, a hospital, a little, a little room set up as a hospital there where you can, relive 
Hmm. consistently and act out with your peers, other kids that are going through the same thing and compare that experience so you don't feel like a freak, yeah? Mm -hmm. They have a volcano room that's padded um, that they go in there with a a counselor or or a mentor, whatever they they call them there, and and the kids can hit the walls for five minutes and get it out. They have like a a little graffiti wall where kids can leave messages to their mom, dad, or or, or whomever that's passed, sharing circles, and it's compartmentalized and broken up into different age groups so that the kids each have like you know their their own their own uh experience within um within their maturity level also uh it's it's amazing and um i think it it it, it, it it's going to do so well or it has been doing so well for um mm-hmm. for for children that to, to be able to deal to be able to deal and to be able to cope with law and families also to be like it's okay Mm-hmm. You know, they walk in and there's a whole wall fee of, of pictures up there. And, and on the wall, it's, it's all pictures of the moms and dads who have passed mm-hmm. and, uh, suddenly and, and left these kids. And they can all go there and have pizza on Saturday night and hang out with them and remember them rather than have to walk around with that little monkey in their pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. then that little monkey grows and grows and grows as you get older and then it becomes a, however, 500, 800 pound silverback gorilla. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. So, this was beautiful. Thank you. What Thank a beautiful you. night. Thank you for the time. Thank you for, hey, if you like to wear wigs, that's awesome. But in Fee's yeah. case, like, <laughs> thank you for not putting on the quote unquote wig and for not, not in how it made you feel in this yes. particular right. aspect and, and, and in your case, hiding, mm-hmm. you know, or feeling. And uh, thank you for your courage and thank you for playing big. Thank you for having the courage to get on here and, and tell your story and, and choosing me to, to, to do it with. I'm, I'm honored. So thank you, Faith. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Till next time. Love you. Okay. Love you too. Bye-bye. Fee. Bye. We could, we could talk about, so Theodora and I, we just, we just got off the mics and uh, we were wrapping up this session and realized that there's a whole part B that will, will, uh, I'd like to come back if it's okay with you because it's been an hour and 25 minutes okay. and I feel that can, when, so we're fresh and it can be its whole, its, its okay. entire conversation sure. and uh, come back on and discuss life after, life after your experience, can- life, life after, after cancer, cancer. Yeah. after it goes on yep. and uh, what we do to take care of ourselves, yep. which is really uh, how Fee and I met, I guess. Because yeah, that's, that's exactly why, how we met. That's, that's why I started Summus and that's what we do together on, uh, right. you know, That's why I started frequent, doing yoga. <laughs> frequently, yeah. So, and there's a, and, and there's a lot. Um, so I guess this episode's for anyone who's in it right now, that's going through it, that's climbing that mountain to kind of get some perspective. If you need to get in touch with uh, Theodora or myself, feel free to uh, info at Summus Body Mind and just I'll forward yes. it to her or get or it to me. Or if anyone wants a copy of my book, yeah, how do, I'm that, happy to give you one. Um, uh, I, I, I donate all the proceeds to BCRF. I think there's a way to, Fee, and don't quote me, but on Amazon, I mm-hmm. think like they'll print off just if people order, um, and then we can send those proceeds direct. But let's look into that, and we'll tell them okay. next episode. But guys, if you want to read Fee's book, or if you want to order it, just uh, hit us up at info at Summers Body Mind. I'll let Fee know, get her in touch with you if you want to talk to her personally. And uh, if you ever want to read the book, it's in the library. When you come in here, please don't take it out because it's special to me. <laughs> and um, we'll be back with another episode on Life After Cancer. Yeah. Cool. The sequel. Cliffhanger. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> bye, guys. All right. Bye.